It's March 1990, and Dr. George Zahorian is treating one of his regular patients in his Harrisburg, Pennsylvania office. Like many visitors to Dr. Zahorian, this patient is a wrestler, 400 pounds of steroid-inflated muscle. The wrestler looks at the chubby, bespectacled doctor and pleads for help. Doc, I'm about to go out on tour in Europe for weeks. I'm going to need a load of steroids and painkillers to get me through. Dr. Zahorian nods understandingly. In 1977, the Pennsylvania Athletic Commission made him the house doctor at WWF's weekly TV shoots in Allentown. He's been playing Dr. Feelgood to the wrestling community ever since. Even though the WWF kicked him out in 1989, he's still the go-to guy for wrestlers in need of a fix. Dr. Zahorian unlocks his medicine cabinet and pulls out box after box of medication. Okay, I'll help, but only because I trust you'll be careful out there. I hear the FBI is watching wrestling very closely. Dr. Zahorian hands over more than 2,000 pills, including Halcyon, Xanax, Vicodin, and more. Boxes of syringes, vials of testosterone, $25,000 of performance-enhancing drugs and painkillers. Enough to last a lifetime. Thanks, Doc. This should keep me going. Just seconds after the wrestler leaves, FBI agents storm into Dr. Zahorian's reception area. Dr. Zahorian, please stand aside. We have a warrant to search the premises. The color drains from the doctor's face. His heart is pounding. He's stashed his wrestling patient's records off-site, but he's still got receipts for steroid shipments in his office. Oh, oh my. Um, may I call my attorney before you begin? The agents nod, and Dr. Zahorian rushes into his office. But instead of picking up his phone, he opens the filing cabinet. Hands shaking, he rummages through the files and pulls out a handful of FedEx receipts. He glances at the half-open door to make sure he's out of sight and starts tearing up the documents. The FBI agents hear the noise and burst into the room. Dr. Zahorian, stop what you're doing immediately. You're under arrest. The doctor freezes. Torn pieces of paper flutter from his hands onto the floor. The doctor is marched out of the building and into the parking lot. From across the way, he sees the wrestler who just left his office, removing a wire from under his shirt. As Dr. Zahorian is driven away, back in his office, FBI agents are already piecing the torn documents back together. Their receipts for illegal steroid shipments to two familiar names, WWF wrestling stars Lord Alfred Hayes and Rowdy Roddy Piper. It's a brand new lead in their investigation, and it points directly to the WWF's front door. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. On the last episode, Vince McMahon took charge of the WWF and crushed the wrestling old guard. 
and cable TV mogul Ted Turner bought the floundering WCW promotion. But now, scandal is threatening McMahon's wrestling empire. Could this be just the break Turner needs to take him on? This is Episode 2, Bulking Up. It's June 1991, and in WWF's headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut, Vince McMahon stares in horror at USA Today's front page. The headline reads, Hulk, bulk from a bottle? Dr. George Zahorian's trial for illegally dispensing steroids to wrestlers starts tomorrow. Since his arrest 15 months ago, the identities of the WWF stars he supplied haven't become public. But now, the secret's out. McMahon knows these revelations could destroy Hulk Hogan's wholesome image and threaten the WWF's reputation as a family show. McMahon needs to neutralize this scandal fast. He grabs his phone and punches in the number for WWF Chief Attorney Jerry McDevitt. A few hours later in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, McDevitt steps into the office of the federal judge overseeing Dr. Zahorian's trial. Thank you for seeing me at short notice, Judge. My client, the WWF, is very concerned about the prosecution's decision to call Hulk Hogan as a witness. The judge peers at McDevitt over his thin-rimmed glasses. Let me guess. You're going to ask me not to compel Hogan to testify. On what grounds? The federal attorneys do not need Hogan to make their case. He's only listed in the doctor's FedEx logs Six times. That's less than the other wrestlers called to court. Also, the logs that include him predate the steroids restrictions that this case depends on. I still don't hear why he shouldn't be testifying. McDevitt leans forward. Hulk Hogan is the most famous wrestler in the world, Your Honor, and critical to my client's business. If Hogan is put on the witness stand, it'll create a media circus that will do untold damage to WWF's reputation. And, Your Honor, the WWF is not on trial here. The judge presses his palms together. Hmm. Okay, Mr. McDevitt, I accept your argument. I won't require Hogan to testify. The WWF quickly issues a media statement emphasizing how Hogan isn't accused of wrongdoing and won't be taking the stand. But it doesn't quell the media storm. When Dr. Zahorian is found guilty two days later, the papers are full of stories about the WWF wrestlers who use steroids to build their massive muscles. McMahon ramps up the damage control. It's July 1991. And the WWF is holding a press conference in the tastefully decorated terrace room of the Plaza Hotel in Manhattan. Dressed in a gray suit and green tie, the six-foot-three McMahon addresses reporters. At the WWF, we take the issue of steroids extremely seriously. That's why today we are announcing a new drug testing regime for all WWF wrestlers. A reporter raises his hand. Mr. McMahon, you look like you work out. Have you used steroids? McMahon decides honesty is the best policy. I did use a steroid I got from Dr. Zahorian about four years ago, but I used it only once. As the scandal rumbles on, WWF's popularity takes a beating. Viewers and advertisers desert its TV shows. 
pay-per-view buys and ticket sales for live events tumble. The only comfort, and it's cold comfort, is that Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling is failing to capitalize on WWF's woes. Since the 1988 Turner buyout, WCW boss Jim Hurd just can't seem to catch a break. The former Pizza Hut regional managers tried gimmick after gimmick to get people watching. He's lit up WCW's TV shows with indoor fireworks. He's introduced a wrestling duo called the Ding Dongs, who wear bright orange spandex bodysuits covered in tiny bells. He's even sent a movie star law enforcer into the ring. And ladies and gentlemen, the nation's number one law enforcer. He serves the public trust, protects the innocent, upholds the law, the ultimate peace officer, The WCW's also plagued with infighting. Hurd has fallen out with his chief booker, who writes the scripts for each wrestling match, and his top wrestler, Ric Flair, over the WCW's direction. And now, Hurd and Flair's disagreements are about to explode. It's August 1991, and Flair is in Hurd's private office in WCW's headquarters in Atlanta. The 42-year-old wrestler's contract is up for renewal, and he's expecting a big pay hike. After all, he's WCW's biggest star and its current champion. Flair runs his hand through his wavy blonde shoulder-length hair and pops the question. Okay, Jim, what are you offering me to stay? Hurd frowns. Rick, we're, we're losing money and the ratings are down. My offer is $350,000 a year for two years. Flair leaps to his feet in anger. You are not cutting my pay in half. I'm your champion. I'm your star wrestler. You go cut someone else's pay. Hurd crosses his arms. If you were as good as you think you are, our ratings wouldn't be down. You can take the deal, or you can f*** off. Flair clamps his fists on his hips. Give me back the $25,000 security deposit I put down on the championship belt, plus interest, and I'm gone. Hurd sneers. F*** you and the belt. Flair explodes. It's not f*** me. It's f*** you, unless you return my deposit. It's my belt. With that, Flair stomps out of Hurd's office. Half an hour later, Vince McMahon gets a call. Vince, it's Ric Flair. I want out of WCW. If you want me, I'll come to WWF. This is music to McMahon's ears. Rick, Rick, of course I want you. Fantastic. There's something else, too. Oh, yeah? I've still got the WCW championship belt. They won't give me my deposit. So I'm keeping it. I could bring it with me if you like. A mighty grin breaks across McMahon's face. He knows exactly what to do with that big gold belt. It's Monday, September 9th, 1991. And in his Atlanta home, Jim Hurd sits in front of the TV, beer in hand. He's watching Primetime Wrestling, WWF's flagship show on the USA Network. Tonight is a big night for the show because 
Ric Flair is about to make his WWF debut, keen to see what the competition's going to do with his former champion. Just moments after the show starts, Hurd's jaw drops. Oh, crap! On the screen, a WWF commentator is hyping up Flair's imminent arrival, and in his hands, the commentator is brandishing Flair's solid gold WCW belt. Hurd's not just lost WCW's biggest star, he's also let the belt that WCW touts as the most prestigious prize in wrestling become a prop on their rival's TV show. And it's my pleasure to introduce, you got it, the real world champion, Rick Flair. The following morning, Hurd is fired. It's June 1992. And in the Center Stage Theater in Atlanta, WCW's wrestlers are meeting their new boss. He's a thick-set former wrestler called Cowboy Bill Watts. And of course, he wears a Stetson. The wrestlers study Watts' torso. They've heard he always carries a gun. They're wondering if he's packing heat right now. They've also heard a rumor that he urinated in the CNN parking lot. But Watts isn't here to clarify rumors. Instead, he's come to give WCW a big kick in the ass with his snakeskin boots. There ain't no way to sugarcoat this, so here's the truth. WCW is a shambles. Since Turner bought you, you pissed away 19... million dollars. Two wrestlers glance at each other. Did Watts just break wind? He did but he's not breaking his diatribe. The TV shows you've been filming here are an embarrassment. All these bright lights. Looks like you're wrestling in a shopping mall. So we're going to fix things. And we're fixing them my way. I don't want any bullcrap for many of y'all. For the next hour, Watts lays down the law. He wants to rewind the clock, take wrestling back to the days before the WWF started putting wrestlers in polka dots and other outlandish costumes. I want real wrestling, not namby-pamby dance routines. No more mats outside the ring. That looks fake. No more lewd hand gestures, neither. No more acrobatic leaps off the ropes. Come on. I want blood. I want violence. I want spontaneity. Give me that, and we're going to win big. While Watts is settling in at WCW, the WWF is in turmoil. Since the steroid scandal erupted, the bad news hasn't stopped coming. Hulk Hogan's taking a break from the ring to focus on acting. McMahon's also fallen out with the ultimate warrior, the face-painted wrestler he hoped would be WWF's next superstar. On top of that, two WWF staffers have been fired after claims that they've been using their position to sexually exploit young men who wanted to get into the wrestling business. There are also two potentially crippling lawsuits pending. One from a rookie wrestler left semi-paralyzed after a match. The other from a former commentator demanding hundreds of thousands of dollars in unpaid royalties. And it's all hammering the ratings of WWF's TV shows, including primetime wrestling. It's October. 1992, and Vince McMahon and his top lieutenants are meeting in WWF's headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. For months, they've been trying, without success, to revive primetime wrestling's ratings. Now, 
McMahon wants to start over. Let's forget about overhauling primetime wrestling. Come on, it's time to create a new show to replace it. I want something uh, more in your face. One executive riffs on McMahon's idea. Uh, why don't we take the fights out of the arenas and back into small, intimate venues? Uh, put, put the audience ringside and have the wrestlers doing their skits right there instead of taping them separately. It would feel like it's live to the viewers at home. Dick Glove, vice president of business operations, picks up the baton. Yeah, we can put mics in the ring so the viewers hear every grunt and crash on the mat. It'll feel unscripted, like something uncooked, raw. McMahon points at Glove. Raw. I like that. Sounds dangerous. That should be the name of the show. In January 1993, Monday Night Raw debuts. And it's like nothing wrestling fans have ever seen before. With its small venues, live vibe, and up-close, over-the-top action, Raw is a world away from the orchestrated atmosphere of most wrestling TV shoots. The reaction is huge. Raw's first episode attracts more than two million viewers. Soon, the show's drawing people back to WWF. Raw's success is a bitter blow for WCW's boss, Watts. He thought gimmick-free back-to-basics wrestling would work wonders. Instead, viewers are choosing the WWF's energetic and crazy action over his dimly lit TV shows. But the cowboy has bigger trouble on the way. And that's because his past is about to catch up with him. It's February 1993, and in CNN Center in Atlanta, WCW executive producer Cowboy Bill Watts is riding up the elevator to Turner Broadcasting's executive suite. He exits the elevator, strides down the corridors of the building's 14th floor, and enters the office of Bill Shaw. Shaw is the senior executive at Turner Broadcasting, who oversees WCW. And he's not happy. As Watts takes his seat, Shaw pushes a sheet of paper across the desk at him. You want to explain this? Watts picks up the sheet of paper. It's a faxed copy of an interview he did for a wrestling newsletter in 1991. A paragraph is marked with yellow highlighter, the part where Watts defends a 1960s restaurant owner who opted to shut down his Atlanta eatery rather than comply with a court order to serve African Americans. Well, I don't deny that I said that, but anyone who thinks I'm a bigot is an idiot. I believe in freedom. He should have the freedom to discriminate. Shaw glares at Watts. The cowboy gets the message. You know what? I'm done with this damn business. I'm out. It's May 1993. And there's a new face in Shaw's office. A guy who resembles a bulked-up Ken doll. He's Eric Bischoff. And he wants to fill the cowboy's now-empty boots. On paper, Bischoff shouldn't stand a chance at becoming WCW's executive producer. He's their promotion's backup announcer, a guy so low in the pecking order that Shaw had never heard of him until his resume landed on his desk. 
But Shaw's curious. He wants to know why Bischoff reckons he could run the show. All right, Eric, this is your moment. Tell me, how are you going to fix WCW? Bischoff straightens up and makes his case. The old ways won't work. If they did, all those regional promoters the WWF wiped out would still be around. We need to think like a TV production company, not a wrestling promotion. We need production values to match WWF, and we can't just focus on the South. To beat WWF, we've got to think and act national. Shaw nods. He agrees wholeheartedly with Bischoff's analysis. Okay, so how would you take WCW out of the red and into the black? We cut back on live events. Every time we do one, we lose money. That's going to continue until we sort out the TV shows. Maybe we stop live shows altogether. Shaw smiles. He's impressed by Bischoff's bold ideas, although he feels that stopping live events completely is a step too far. A few days later, Bischoff gets the job. But now that he's talked his way into WCW's driving seat, he's got to deliver. It's fall, 1993, and Bischoff is at Disney World in Orlando, Florida. But he's not on vacation. Instead, he's touring Disney MGM Studios. He's been hunting for a permanent TV shoot location for WCW for weeks. And now he's found the ideal home. Its facilities are first-rate. Its Disney World location means there will always be a studio audience on hand. Bischoff also loves that WCW's TV shows could open with the words, Coming to you from the Disney MGM Studios in Orlando, Florida. But he's getting ahead of himself. He might want to bring wrestling to Disney World, but Disney isn't sure it wants his muscle heads hanging around the Magic Kingdom. A couple of weeks later, Bischoff's back in Orlando trying to convince a conference room full of Disney executives to let WCW through their gates. But it's not going well. Several of the executives have turned around in their seats, putting their backs to him. Bischoff, soldiers on. I promise you that WCW is very much a family-friendly production. It won't be out of place in Disney World. The Disney team looked doubtful. Bischoff can sense the opportunity slipping away from him. But then, out of the blue, one Disney executive comes to the rescue. I know this is outside our comfort zone, but I think this could be good. The studio will be in constant use and generating income. Plus, I think it will be an added attraction for guests. The intervention defrosts the room. After more discussion, the Disney executives agree to let WCW use the studio. But there are conditions. We don't want wrestlers wandering around the theme park frightening our guests. They get bussed in and out each day, and they don't leave the studio when here. And the curtains on the bus windows must be drawn so people don't see them arrive. Bischoff interrupts. No to the curtains. I'll accept the rest. But uh, that's going too far. The Disney executives confer briefly. Fine, fine. No curtains. I think we have a deal. Getting into Disney World is a big boost for Bischoff, but an even bigger boost is just around the corner thanks to Ric Flair. Earlier that year, he quit WWF to rejoin WCW after McMahon started pushing younger wrestlers to the fore. 
It's December 1993, and Flair's in the living room of his Atlanta home, putting bags of ice on his strained muscles. Last night, the brash wrestling star put in one of the greatest performances of his career, a roller coaster championship fight with rival wrestler Vader that had the audience of WCW's Starcade pay-per-view on the edge of their seats. As he applies another ice bag, his phone rings. He reaches over and grabs the handset. This is Rick. Hey, Rick, it's the Hulkster. Last night, brother, oh, wow. You nearly had me crying it was so good. <laughs> Thanks, Hulk. Tell me, brother, what's going on in WCW that's creating shows that good? Flair sinks back into the couch. Well, we've got this new guy in charge. Name's Eric Bischoff. He's got some really great ideas. After a moment of silence, Hogan responds. You should give me his number. It's two in the morning the following day, and Bischoff is awakened by a phone call. Uh, Eric Bischoff speaking. He recognizes the voice on the line immediately. Hello, brother. We should talk. It's Hogan, and he's about to give Bischoff and the WCW the leg up they've been praying for. On the next episode, Hulkamania comes to Atlanta, Vince McMahon faces prison, and Ted Turner declares all-out war. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Just tap or swipe over the cover art, and you'll see some offers from our sponsors. You can support our show by supporting them. We hope you will. If you like what you've heard, we would love it if you give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way you can support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. And don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. A quick note about the conversations you've been hearing. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Tristan Donovan wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Donna Hyams edited this story. Our editor and producer is Jenny Lauer Beckman. Sound design by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie, created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. 